0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Jacob Dahlke, the director of Nebraska Medicine's Office of Healthcare Ethics. Jacob Dahlke is a clinical ethicist and the director of the Office of Healthcare Ethics at Nebraska Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska. Jacob is a graduate of the Bioethics program at Union Graduate College, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and has contributed to the medical ethics field at the Vermont Ethics Network, the University of Vermont Medical Center, the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities, and Creighton University's Center for Health Policy and Ethics. Jacob's primary interests in bioethics include advanced care planning, LGBTQ plus and feminist ethics, and healthcare professional wellness as it relates to moral distress and moral injury. His other interests include taking on too many home remodel projects, and with his spouse, enjoying watching his children explore the universe. Uh, Jacob, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Would you mind explaining to us what are bioethics? Sure, Um, I I get that question a lot actually, and sometimes my response is it depends on the day. but uh, a bioethicist is a person in a healthcare profession that helps to identify, analyze, and hopefully resolve issues or dilemmas as it relates to healthcare uh, situations and healthcare decisions.
0: Why would that be difficult? Perhaps illustrate a scenario where perhaps sure. some of some of those issues may be um, may need some external guidance.
1: Sure. A really common situation in which I get involved is with regards to surrogate decision making. And so there's a number of different uh, conditions in which a person might find themselves unable to make decisions for themselves. They've been either suffered a a serious trauma or that's just a part of the natural progression of their disease. And they're not able to consider or articulate a, a certain decision as to perhaps whether to have surgery Uh, whether to continue on with a certain medical treatment um, or participate regarding discharge plans. And so we rely then on uh, other people often to help us make those decisions. And things can get really complicated very quickly then because then we're dealing with multiple people and, and having to try to interpret what the patient's goals and values might have been um, and yet using a translator, someone who knows them well, hopefully, and, and loves them and, and cares for them. But, but there's often that, that complicated relationship that they may have that potentially can at least, um, make things more complicated. And we're not talking about the law here
0: either, are we? Because the law, I'm not saying that ethics isn't, doesn't have a role to play in law. Sure. But the law is something that can be a judge because it is in, uh, black and white, it's set out, or it's some kind of court precedent, and there are lawyers to help guide us through that. But but ethics, I would imagine, especially bioethics, has a somewhat more opaque and mm-hmm. wide gray area yeah. to work within, which
1: which isn't the remit of lawyers, and certainly not the remit of administrators. Sure. Sure. He- law and, and healthcare law certainly gives us, or tends to give us, uh, a black and white sort of scenario where where we know what is permissible or impermissible. And and you're absolutely right. Bioethics tends to live in that gray zone where we may not know what is the most appropriate path, even though we might know what is legal and illegal. You know, I've been in situations, or I've I've talked to people too, where uh, perhaps the most ethical decision happens to be one that is illegal.
0: I love that. Don't end there. Could you? Can <laughs>
1: can, well, can you sort of yeah, paint that picture? Sure. Um, you know, the, there's a, there's a sort of a classic thought experiment just in background ethics, which is not healthcare ethics, but I think it helps illustrate, you know, if you, if you have a situation where you know what is right and wrong in a situation, you know, if I'm going home to my, to my family, um, having to, tried to, uh, find a job and, and I'm about to be evicted from my home and I, I turn the corner and I happen to, to come across a, um, gym bag full of $10,000. The question is, should I take the money? We universally would agree that it is morally wrong and perhaps even illegal to take that money. And yet we still have this dilemma as to what should we do. And so, while the law may give us clear boundaries, ethics provides us a mechanism for considering when might we choose otherwise. And that that goes back to then my own values. You know, do I value my own personal integrity Over a commitment to my family. Those two things obviously would be very important to me But in that sort of a situation I have to choose which one is more important and There's no right or wrong answer if I take the money I could I could come up with very good reasons as to why I would consider that a reasonable action and conversely I could um, choose not to take the bag
0: so I suspect for many people it would be easier to consider the subject of bioethics less in its conceptual framing and perhaps more in terms of some examples of uh, incidences and moments that you have encountered or, or had to deal with or have heard of. I would imagine there are any number of those that, that might exist, but certainly from your bio One of those that that you've mentioned is towards end of life decision making. And I wonder if in that particular field of healthcare provision, what kinds of ethical dilemmas have been faced by the patient, family, healthcare
1: providers? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and it it is a situation that we find ourselves in quite a bit. Um, There are a lot of times where we have many options for what we can provide for patients, whether that be a surgery, whether that be another round of chemotherapy um, or or whether that be some other sort of intervention. And and we use the term a lot, uh, life-sustaining medical treatments. And so those things would be things like uh, artificial nutrition, you know, a feeding tube into the stomach, um, mechanical ventilation. Um, there's There's a technology called ECMO that perfuses your blood for you when you can't do it for yourself. Those, those are obviously life saving, albeit often temporary therapies. And then the challenge is how, how long should we provide them? Because sometimes we can continue to provide them and they would work physiologically, but they may not help us achieve a certain goal. And, and that goal is determined by the patient. And so if we know that therapy or that intervention is not going to achieve its goal, that puts us in a different place. Where we, where we should consider stopping it. And there, there's a lot of um, ethical theories around, you know, the idea be, behind withholding a treatment of saying, we're just not gonna do it because we don't think it's gonna work, and withdrawing, which is where we've already started, and now we have to stop. And it's often considered that those are equal on ethical grounds, but in the moment, those are very, very different because it feels different to say, we're gonna stop doing this thing that used to work or might still actually be working, but it's not gonna help us achieve that, that bigger goal that the patient is trying to accomplish.
0: How might different stakeholders in this scenario, how might they approach this differently? So how might the same question, for example, sustaining treatment or Giving treatment to a patient in their end of life, how might the different stakeholders—the patient, family members, the doctors—how might they differently approach the question about what do we do?
1: It's a really good uh, question. It sort of it highlights for me um, a quote that I often use in in my presentations um, by Wallace Stevens, which is perhaps uh, the truth depends on a walk around the lake and and i love that because you know we're often in the same situation but find ourselves with different perspectives on it and each one is not any more or less valid than the other while at the same time maintaining that the patience is the most important and so we we often have to to take some time and and that's a really hard thing in healthcare now um, is to find time to hear these stories and talk with these people, and that's part of where I have my role. Um, because I'm I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I don't take care of patients, and so the ability to take that time and hear the stories and hear those perspectives becomes really important. And you know, the the patient um, their their role in this is is to sort of establish what's our goal you know and and when it comes to things like the end of the, a person's life if they have a terminal diagnosis or some sort of terminal disease they might still have goals and and they often will still have goals they, they want to to accomplish that one more thing they want to make it to that special event a, a child's wedding or graduation or baptism or something like that and those are really important goals knowing that beyond that is going to be that person's death eventually, but you still have these short-term goals. And so those are the ones that we try to focus on. So help, helping the medical team establish what are we trying to do here? And it's gonna be very different for each person. The healthcare providers, we they, they're there to promote healing and try to recover a person as best as possible. And and sometimes we have different ideas about what that is. And that's, that's sometimes where we come into those conflicts. Um, family members can can often weigh in, um, in ways that we, it, that are often really helpful and productive, particularly with, uh, situations where the patient themselves might not be able to speak for themselves. And so we ask family members to, to step in and help us understand that. But, um, admittedly, I think, uh, healthcare professionals sometimes ask the wrong questions. And we ask, what do you want to do about your mother or your father? Um, and I, and I think that's the wrong question because, then we're asking the family member to interpret their relationship, which might be incredibly complicated or recently estranged or recently recovered. And and so what I want for that patient might be very different than what that patient themselves want. And so so we have to navigate that situation, too. The new is just Talk for we too much the
0: let the seas back
1: Cause everything Obviously
0: being compliant with all the rules of confidentiality, but is there a way for you to illustrate maybe a, a particular instance or, or a typical conundrum that comes up often?
1: I'm pausing now because I can't think of one. It's I'm pausing because I'm thinking of a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think in, in its own way yeah. is both wonderful and
0: arresting mm-hmm. in the sense that it is every day that there are people in the country and certainly in Omaha that are having to deal with difficult ethical issues about what do we just do here?
1: Yeah. I, I think I could probably provide you with a sort of a generalized situation as opposed to a specific one. You know, if we think of uh, a person who is otherwise healthy, you know, perhaps in the, their mid 40s or, or, or early 50s or something like that, otherwise healthy, has some sort of a catastrophic injury right? Whether it's a motor vehicle accident, perhaps an aneurysm or stroke or something like that. And they're able to, to get to the hospital in time, the medical teams do their job and and they save that person's life. But the prognosis is that this person will be minimally conscious, um, if at all, and they will never regain any movement except for maybe a couple of fingers or or a hand or the right side of their body, never going to get out of bed again. That's a very um, radical change when we think of a person's quality of life. And so that can become particularly challenging to think about what's next for this person. And if that person has not thought about it beforehand, then we're even in a more complicated situation because it might be hard for even the family members to, to speak up and say, I don't know what he would want in this situation. And so then we have to go on what's called a best interests standard, which is not in and of itself bad, but it's sort of the least preferred standard that we use, which is what is best for this person? You know, we, we think about quality of life and, and how important it is to consider every person's life, regardless of they're able to contribute to society, for example. But at the same time, we, we have to ask ourselves, what would this person want and, and how much are we able to provide that? in some sort of a meaningful way. And so that becomes a, a potentially end of life situation. Or if not, we, then we think about what, what is this person's quality of life and how can we maximize it? And is that good enough?
0: Again, from your bio, you mentioned particular interests in certain clinical fields, LGBTQ+, feminist ethics. I wonder if you might explain, perhaps, your interest in those particular domains and, and how bioethics might appear there.
1: When I refer to feminist ethics, I think the, the primary focus of, of that sort of um, subfield within bioethics is, is a focus on amplifying voices in a situation that are that are otherwise hidden. And so one question that often comes up in, in that sort of a scenario is who is not at the table, who is not being heard from in this situation. Sometimes it's the patient themselves. Right. But, but trying to, to think of scenarios, not just what is the loudest voice in the room, perhaps, um, cause that tends to dominate, but being able to take a break from that situation and say, what's not being heard here? Who, who is being absent? Who's being left out? That sort of segues, I think, naturally into LGBTQ plus ethics and, and some of the issues that those individuals face in healthcare and the discrimination and biases that we have against them tend to manifest themselves more. In healthcare, and so it's, it's more a, a sense of duty. I think to make sure that we are listening to all of those voices.
0: Are there clinical issues that might be specific to to that particular field, either um, LGBTQ plus or that feminist lens?
1: I think uh, the best example I, I can think of is, is the basic discrimination that, for example, transgender patients face. Um, they have a complicated relationship often with healthcare providers, and, and we tend to make that worse. It's important that we approach them as individuals with individual needs, and, and we often will take our own biases or assumptions about what it's like and just project onto that without, again, taking into account the story behind it taking a walk around that lake and and considering what their views are and what are their goals and what, what are they trying to accomplish with their lives. And, um, you know, sometimes those questions uh, manifest in reproductive considerations and how do we think about that and how, how ought we think about that to, to help them promote their own goals. It must be incredibly
0: difficult to be in this gray area. I also wonder the degree to which you... And not only balancing the voices in the room, but maybe being responsive to the ethics of a broader society and the degree to which social norms from outside the clinical facility might, might be relevant here. Maybe it's religious beliefs. Maybe, um, maybe it's abortion and the ethics of abortion and, and not necessarily get into the politics or necessarily the faith based view of that, but, um, those views or ethical standards of society at large. Mm-hmm. But how you have to maybe hold those in balance
1: with the ethical situation
0: that sits in the, in the clinical facility.
1: Yeah, really, that really highlights sort of different levels of, of ethics. You know, we, we often talk about the individual relationship between a, a physician, for example, and the patient and how that dynamic originates and how it operates. But that's just one level. That's, that's the most individualized level. Then we also have, you know, a higher level of the interactions between the healthcare organization, you know, between the hospital and how they treat their patients and how they treat their physicians, for example. And then we have another layer on top of that, which is a region, you know, how do we think about, um, an issue like abortion in a place like Nebraska, which might be different than how we think about it in the United States. And so, so there are multiple layers. That might come into conflict with each other. And, and it is important. And part of my role is to help find clarity in those very obscure situations where those t- things might be in conflict with each other. And the individuals in the situation might not see it. And so my, my view is, is often from a much broader place. I try to get as close to the situation as I can. Um, but I lose my, my objectivity and, and therefore my role in a healthcare situation if or when I get too close. Conversely, if I'm too far away as well. So it, so it is about striking that fine balance. I had a mentor of mine uh, described visually a way to describe bioethics, which is, you know, healthcare can get really messy sometimes. You know, everyone is in this pit and trying to get the patient out of that pit and, and on with their lives. And sometimes things can get really messy. And people in that pit lose their way and they don't know which way to get out. And so my job as the bioethicist is to not jump into the pit with them, but to get as close to the edge of that pit as I can. So I can see as much as I can and tell them what I see that, that if, if we want to move out of the pit, here's one way to get out of the pit, but realize that it's going to be a much longer road and, and perhaps still messy. There's a quick and easy exit right here but that might also come with its own consequences. And so so just being able to, to be as close to the edge um, without going in myself.
0: You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
1: Let me tell you about
0: it. Oh, yeah. I want to tell you. About it,
1: <laughs> let me tell you, I've been gone, yeah. <laughs> gone so long. Just wanna sing, <laughs> sing my song. I know <laughs> you've been here, hearing <laughs> a lot of things.
0: such a fascinating area because as you're talking now, I'm, I'm thinking about the other tensions that exist. So, um, I mean, bluntly, you're paid by the institution. How do you balance your own internal set of values and the own pressures upon you with your ability to look at the organization that, that you work
1: for and still act as objectively as you can? That's a really good question and, and it's one that I think is still highlighted in our profession, you know, that, that is, a I I think an honest critique of the profession and, and some, it depends on the model. It depends on where you happen to live in the United States, but there, are there are different sort of business models for how bioethics operates there because you might want someone who is employed by, by the hospital itself. Um, there are people who, who do sort of private contracting so that they are not beholden to any particular institution. Um, Bioethics in and of itself at its core is um, a free service and so my services are not charged. We don't we don't put any sort of financial burden on um, the patient when something happens. But you're absolutely right there's there's a fine line to walk between considering myself an advocate for the organization but at the same time I'm not an advocate for the patient either. Um, I think it depends on the situation I, I tend to describe to people that I have one foot on the healthcare provider side and I have one foot on the patient's side. And I don't necessarily like to choose one or the other. I don't tell people what to do. And so I think that helps me maintain my objectivity. I I, I don't tell them what to do, I tell them what I see. And I try to empower the people who are supposed to make the decision. I, I try to empower them to be able to make that decision and remove or reduce any barriers that might be in their way. That might be the organization that has the decision to make and I want to be able to empower them to make a a Responsible and ethical decision Whenever that's needed that might be on the side of the patient as well. They might be the ones um, that need to make that decision and so again part of my role is clarifying whose decision is it? And how can we make sure that that decision is made by that entity or by that individual?
0: It seems to me that part of your role boils down to, it uh, can be reduced down to the, the, the people in that pit that you described. And, and they could be any number of the stakeholders, uh, patient, family members, m- maybe members of the community, certainly the healthcare providers. So there's that that level. But also, uh, it seems to me there is maybe a systemic level, too, perhaps with, with the entire organization, and how it holds itself ethically. And I don't know if that is within your remit. Do you feel or do you have an obligation to help create an ethical Mm -hmm. culture at Nebraska Medicine or or is that a bioethicist role generally? I think it can
1: be. Um, Again, I think uh, my profession is still fairly individualized depending on the institution, depending on the region, Um, it's a relatively new profession within the healthcare Industry and so we're sort of working that out and I don't know if we'll ever come to a consensus and that's okay Um, But it really does depend on uh, The institution now within my role as ethics director at Nebraska medicine part of my role is um, doing just that like you said and and that that realm is sort of uh, Referred to as organizational ethics and so for example at Nebraska medicine we have a an organizational code of ethics Part of my role within Nebraska medicine is to ensure that that is um, Upheld to a certain level and I have help we have an ethics committee and I'm a part of that ethics committee But but that's a multidisciplinary group and, and it's really distributed out through the entire organization and part of their charge is to do that as well One other role that's traditionally attributed to bioethicists is policy development and review and so again, that's that's an opportunity for me to ask questions and review and and again provide my sort of perspective and input on on question on, on policies that might have some sort of an ethical lens through which we need to look at them
0: we probably have been wrestling with ethical questions for millennia yet you've mentioned that bioethics is a new field that has me wondering why and is it to hazard a guess before I give you a chance to answer, something to do with technology and perhaps the competence we have now around all things to do with health and well-being. We're at a place where we can um, lengthen, uh, extend someone's life or perhaps we're in a situation where someone may be clinically dead, but we can pull them back with an extreme measure. Why is bioethics a new
1: field? I think we can blame the Nazis on this. Let's blame the Nazis. We can blame the Nazis. I, you know, the reason I say that is, um, you know, after World War II, there was the Nuremberg trials and, and out of that, you know, one of the results of, of, of those trials was sort of the sense that, um, we should not do things to people without their informed consent, right? We, there, there's a certain right to bodily integrity, um, that, that is just innate in all of us. And so, you know, when, when I talk about, Bioethics being a new field um, We've certainly grappled with those questions since Hippocrates and and before that even right um, But it started to be formalized a little bit more just in recent times partly because of that there was this Oddly new sense of bodily integrity and, and self-integrity um, But then yes technology the ability for us to keep people alive in ways that wasn't possible prior to those inventions or, or improvements in technology. A great example is um, a story that's that it's known as the God Squad from Seattle in the 60s, when the dialysis machines were invented. And so prior to the invention of the dialysis machine, if you were in end-stage disease, you were gonna die. There was no way around that. Now all of a sudden we have dialysis machines where you are literally kept alive because of the technology in that machine. And that, be, that became a very difficult dilemma for people of of how do you choose who gets on those machines and lives and who gets on them and dies and That situation in particular was was elevated to the national scene and people started having National conversations around that and and that I think really is what spurned sort of the beginnings of saying maybe we need to do this not just at that individual level between the physician and between their patient but we have more of a social obligation to this and more of a social obligation to to think about this in a more responsible way. What is troubling you at the moment
0: as you look at the types of decisions that are having to be addressed now and perhaps are coming around the corner. And the reason I ask is because you talk about dialysis and, and that almost seems quaint
1: now. The idea that that would be a problem. It's amazingly with. not still, it's still an issue ah. because it, because it often provides a quality of life that people find intolerable, not, not always, but, but that can be, a, that can be an issue where, um, it, it really takes its toll on people who are, who are on this for the rest of their yeah. lives. and. It, And, you know, they they have a very regimented schedule and they build their entire lives around that schedule. And that can be really burdensome for some people. What if they decide that's just not worth it anymore? You know, then we talk about one of those situations where the technology is working, right? The the treatment is effective. It is doing its job, but it's not working for the patient. And so how do we navigate that discrepancy?
0: I'm deviating from the question that I... That I just asked you, and I, I definitely want to too. come back to it's that. Okay.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, but I have to ask him: what, what, what about maybe the old, ulti- the ultimate bodily choice, which is suicide? Mm. And do you have a, do you have a view as yourself? Do you have a bioethical view on
1: suicide? I'm not allowed to have my own personal views in my profession. <laughs> Medical aid in dying uh, is, is certainly a hot topic. Um, that is a situation where I, I think healthcare providers um, find themselves at odds with what they have traditionally thought of as their role in healthcare. You know, we, we go to the foundations of why, why are you in healthcare and it's, it's often to promote healing or recovery, some sort of restoration. And for someone to participate um, in the way that they do, which in most cases amounts to the writing of a prescription for a certain drug or series of drugs um, that the patient would then take and, and um, die as a result of that, that, that is a, that's a new line that, that people feel like some people feel like um, is a, a step too far. And it's a, it's a very controversial topic, and, and it's one that um, certainly isn't going in a going away anytime soon. And I think, you know, particularly here in Nebraska, it's an issue that at some point um, we will probably have to have a more public discussion about because it's not going
0: away. Which takes me back to yeah. my question then. So what is A Step Too Far? What are the lines that you are seeing either in front of us now or that you're worried are coming around the corner or we're going to come around the corner and and find these lines what will be a step too far what are these issues
1: i I tend to defer that question to my colleagues who are on the forefront of that i I consider myself an applied ethicist right so i I deal with the day-to-day hospital-based questions but it's it's a a question nonetheless that i try to think about as much as i can um the genetic technology that is coming around um is groundbreaking and uh it's very very exciting the promise of being able to mitigate or eliminate diseases that have previously been the demise to people i think uh, it it provides great promise that's not to say however that we should adopt it in mass right now there there are there are steps that we i think Um, Need to continue to have to make sure that that all of this technology is safe and that it actually is effective the way that we want It to be and and that that's a very very high-level conversation um, among society that I Worry sometimes that technology might be moving faster than we can keep up as a as a society that that concerns me only only Because we haven't had an appropriate amount of time to think about what it all means sort of along the same lines in terms of, you know, what's coming um, is our definition of death. And how does, I mean, who would have even thought that we could consider what death means? I mean, it used to be so black and white. You are alive or you are not. And I think that is actually being challenged. We should almost just drop the mic. (laughs) On that, right? And we're done. (laughs)
0: Let people ponder that. (laughs) Feels like this is a hard subject and I suspect it feels that way because you cannot escape the fact that you deliberately every day work in a field to which there is no manual no book no place to turn that says oh this is the right answer this is the wrong answer you're perpetually in Mm. that um, on the edge of that pit looking in trying to guide people what has been the, the hardest aspect of, of this work for you?
1: The the hardest for me, um, has been being involved in situations, um, in which the stakeholders remind me of the people that I love. The most, um, obvious example for me was, um, a situation in which involved an eight year old. And I happen to have an eight-year-old at the same time, and that you know that was really hard. Um, I got a little too close to that because because of the connection that I was able to see. Those are those are hard. Um, the work itself, I, I find incredibly unique and therefore interesting, and so I, I really do enjoy the work itself. And I'm able to fall back on sort of a series of tools, a set of tools that I can use to help, um, make those decisions. And, you know, we, we operate under what's commonly referred to as, as the four principles of bioethics, right? The notion of patient autonomy. We talked about that a little bit before the, the idea that I have the ability to make my own decisions about my own body. Um, we also have, have the idea of distributive justice or, or, uh, social justice where, um, while I have individual rights, those rights perhaps are not absolute. And there are certain social obligations that might dictate certain decisions that are not left up to the individual. And how do we consider you know, the allocation of, of certain resources fairly and equally uh, among our various populations? And then we sort of have this notion of um, utility, which is sort of a twofold approach of, of what's known as beneficence, which is you know, promoting actions that produce some sort of good and then non-maleficence, which is the notion of avoiding things that, that cause harm. And so how do we consider those two things? I often describe them as two sides of the same coin, right? Of, of we want to do things that are good and we want to avoid things that are bad. So being able to use sort of the, the four principles approach. And then when it comes to you know medical decisions themselves, we, you know, we talk about an individual's right to autonomy and their ability to make their own decisions based on the presumption that I have the ability to make my own decision. And when I don't, I should have people that can help make that decision on my behalf. And we refer to that as substituted judgment, the idea of of my loved one or the the person that knows me very well being able to be a mirror and holding up um, a reflection of who I am uh, to the healthcare provider so that we can make some sort of decision that reflects who I am. And then when we, when we don't have that, and, and we have situations where we have what are, what are called unrepresented patients, where they are people who don't have anybody, or, or they are people who are known in their community, but people don't know them to the level where they can actually contribute anything meaningful about who this person was and what their values were. And so then we have to rely on like, uh, the, the, le- the least valuable standard, which is that best interest standard of, of being able to say, we don't know what this person would want but we as a group have to decide what might be best for this person and those are really hard.
0: Have you ever had a situation where you gave your contribution and just watched it either completely ignored or the reverse of what you thought was, you're a human, you offer these, you, you said you're not allowed to have an opinion, you offer these best opinions but you're <laughs> a human and I I wonder if you've had a situation yeah. where you just thought that was completely the opposite of what I
1: thought you should have done. I, I, Yes, in in short. Yes. Uh, and I was actually just talking about it with someone today about one, one situation in particular where I advocated for a decision that was, you know, we, we, we talked earlier about, uh, the law and, and, um, what might be ethical might also be illegal. And in the absence of legal clarity, if we don't know what is legal or illegal there tends to be a a a push towards avoiding any sort of risk and i advocated for a situation that was potentially riskier but i thought more ethical and i lost that argument
0: this reminds me of game of
1: thrones (laughs) are you a game of thrones person you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to to avoid um, all of it. I actually just started it recently. I'm, I'm only in I think season three. Okay. So I'm pretty early on. So don't don't give me any spoilers.
0: In which case, I'm going to stop. They all die straight don't away. They? Everybody, Everybody dies. dies. I mean, it's just it's it's a bloodbath. The whole thing, <laughs> eight seasons of blood and violence and some love. Well, I'll move on then because I was going to make a comparison. <laughs> Thank you. Which isn't going to work. Thank yeah. you.
1: Um, you know what? Go for it. I don't mind. I don't mind spoilers. Tell me. I can I can frame it this
0: way. There's a moment when a character kills another character, mm-hmm. doesn't want to do so, but does so knowing that the greater good is served this way. An alternative scenario mm. might be you have the gun, the bullet, Hitler's in front of you, do you shoot? Yeah. I- ignoring that we don't know what would happen with mm-hmm. history. Um, but I, w- I was just thinking about yeah. um, making what may be an illegal choice that you understand there are very solid ethical reasons to do that mm-hmm. thing.
1: Yeah, that, that really highlights the tension between those those principles that, that we consider foundational. That's not to say they never conflict with each other, right? The idea... Of, of doing something that causes harm to one party, but is going to be beneficial to more. Though the, the principle then of non-maleficence and beneficence, for example, are at direct odds with each other. So we don't have an answer. You know, so I, I sometimes tell people I, I am not interested in the outcome of a particular situation. I mean, I am at a certain level, but, um, What interests me more and I think what what my role tends to be is helping to clarify the process by which that decision is made So I wouldn't say we must shoot Hitler in that situation What I'm interested in saying is how do we go about deciding that and is that process that decision-making process one? that is reasonable defensible applicable to other situations and is it one that we as a society can can agree on
0: would you have any recommendations for people listening in terms of how they may be attentive to mm. making ethical decisions generally but in particular laying the groundwork for this process to be as ethically clear as possible yeah. at the point in time that bioethics and the medical situation become such that ethics is an issue.
1: Yeah, healthcare is an extension of ourselves, right? It is, it is us at our most vulnerable, which we don't like to think about, right? I I like to think of myself at my best and not at my worst. And yet we're all going to die and we're all going to get sick and we're all going to get injured. And I think, um, I think we do ourselves a disservice. And I think we probably do our society, our community, a disservice by not thinking about that at an individual level. And one way to start that process that can get really overwhelming if I think of my own mortality right now in front of this microphone That can, that can give me the sweats, right? Um, one way to start that process. I think is to think about my values. What is most important to me? That's not something that anybody can contest, right? That is my list and It's important to me to have that as clearly delineated out as I can because if I find myself in a situation where I need to use it, where I need to prioritize one over the other, like in a healthcare crisis, um, that will make things a little bit easier. You know, I, I had mentioned in my bio that one of my areas of interest in it is in advanced care planning. And that, that is part of that process of being able to, to write down or, or to be able to document what are those things that are important to me so that if, God forbid, I find myself in a crisis where I can't speak for myself, at least I've captured that and, and whoever it is that is making that decision on my behalf has a little bit more to go on. And it, and it doesn't feel so burdensome then for that person to, to feel like I'm the one that made the choice. They're just holding the mirror. Is it hard for you to be a bioethicist when perhaps
0: people look at you and expect you to live a life of constant virtue because this is your work and it must be a hard way to live under the spotlight of other people perhaps expecting you day in and day out in in all of your personal behavior let alone your professional life to model
1: virtue and good moral living that last question had to be a curveball huh? i don't know how to answer that <laughs> uh, I, I am I'm a person who is happily wrong I really try to um, Explore the truth and and walk around the lake um, fully expecting to be wrong and That's that's liberating for me because then I get to learn all of these new things that I used to think Were incorrect and then it turned out I was incorrect and so I'm able to to learn new things. So um That might cause ripples in time. Um, but I try to correct those and, and, uh, ask for forgiveness and, and ask for help from others. But, but I think, uh, we have to, we have to keep moving forward and, and try to do so in the most responsible way that we can.
0: I've been in conversation with Jacob Dahlke, the Director of Nebraska Medicine's Office of Healthcare Ethics. Jacob, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for asking me. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.